Amen. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning. Thank you for this Lord's Day. You are the God who made the world and everything in it. And Lord, you are the Lord of heaven and earth. You do not dwell in temples made with human hands. And Lord, you are not worshiped with men's hands as though you needed anything. Lord, it is you who gives to all life, breath, and all things. Lord, you are the sovereign creator God who made from one blood every nation, every ethnicity of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And Lord, you determine the appointed times and the boundaries of the dwellings of man. Lord, we don't control where we're born. We don't control how we're born. We don't control under what circumstances we're born. Lord, you determine our times. You determine the boundaries of the dwellings of man. You determine the boundaries of our dwellings where we live because Lord you are the sovereign God and Lord you did this so that we may seek you and hope that we might grope for you and find you though you are not far from each one of us as our idols are that we worship Lord we have an idolatry problem in our land we have an idolatry problem in our heart. Lord, we may not look at statues and all those things as, as idols. We may not have statues in our homes that we, we bow down to. But Lord, we have the idols of social media. We have idols of the uh, praises of, of man. We have the idol called the fear of man where we fear the opinions of people. We fear what they may say about us or what they may think of us. Lord, that is idolatry because we're, we're worshiping the thoughts of people. We're worshiping the praise of man. But Lord, you are the God who's not far from us. You are the one to whom we are to grope for. You are the one to whom we are to search. Because Lord, it is in you that we live and and move and have our being. Lord, we are your offspring. We are the ones who you made to worship you and to enjoy you forever. And Lord, your word tells us that the times of ignorance you overlook, the times where man claimed to not know God are over. Well, all of us know you. All of us know you exist. But Lord, you command men everywhere to repent. You call men everywhere to bow the knee to you in worship, in submission, to turn to you 
and to be saved. Lord, you're always sending out the call to repentance. In men's hearts, you're doing it. You're doing it when the sermon, when the gospel is preached. Lord, you're summoning all men to repentance. Because you have appointed a day on which you would judge the world in righteousness by the man whom you have ordained, who is Jesus Christ. He will come back to judge the world. And man at that time will be without excuse. Lord, you give an assurance of this by raising Christ from the dead that one day he will come back and he will judge the world. Lord, we thank you for this testimony from your word and, and this is right for us to consider on this Lord's day that you are the sovereign creator, that you created us to worship you and you alone. You called all men, you're calling all men to repent. And Lord, that is the call that we continue to call men to, men and women, mankind, to repent and turn to God and be saved so that they will escape that terrible day when their sins will be judged. Lord, as we look at our nation, we look at our, uh, we look at wickedness abounding in our nation. We look at the wickedness abounding from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and from the uh, state governor's houses throughout our land. Lord, we see all this wickedness taking place and, and we may be asking ourselves, Lord, what shall we do? Should we just wring our hands and, and, and turn away from it and and just say whatever and just leave me into their own devices by no means. Lord, when we see this wickedness, we as believers, we who are people of your book, people of the truth, we are to call men to repent, to pray for their repentance, to pray for their salvation, to pray, Lord, that you may have mercy on them, to pray, Lord, that you may turn their hearts to you that they may be saved turn the hearts of the wicked Lord to you just as you did our hearts Lord turn the hearts of the wicked leaders the wicked rulers the, the wicked citizens in our, in our land who are seeking to turn this world upside down who call evil good and good evil Lord, we're praying that true revival through the turning of hearts to you may sweep this land, sweep this nation, and sweep the church, Lord, because honestly our churches are filled with false converts, false believers, cultural Christians. And they get the greater voice than the true believers, the true church. So, Lord, I pray this morning that you strengthen the, the, the true churches, strengthen the biblical churches, strengthen the pastors who are true shepherds of your flock. As we look at what's going on in our nation and in our leaders, Lord, bring, raise up more bold men 
to boldly proclaim your truth. To not comfort people with lies, but to confront them with your truth. As I heard a preacher say one time, soft preaching makes for hard hearts. The hard preaching softens hearts. We're praying, Lord, for godly men to bring the truth of your word, to preach hard truth that will soften men's hearts. We pray, Lord, for our brothers and elders at Grace Fellowship and Redeemer and Christian Fellowship and Anderson Bible and Iron City and Mountain View, other solid churches, Lord. We're praying that you continue to give us men boldness to preach your truth, to do it unashamedly, to, to marshal the saints, to rally the troops, to live in this world that is hostile toward Christianity, but still to evangelize the lost and call them to repent. As our preachers are boldly proclaiming, Lord, may the members see the call also. It is not just for the preacher, it is for all of us. It is all of our responsibility to herald the gospel, to proclaim your truth, the only truth that matters, the gospel truth. And Lord, as we come down to the preaching of your word, this parable of the wedding feast, which again talks about those who are inside and outside the kingdom. I pray, Father, that you use this word this morning to convict and convince sinners of their sin, that they may be saved, that they may hear your truth, Father. Get on their knees. Call out to you to save them. The day that they hear your voice, Lord, may they not harden your hearts. And Lord, I pray that this may be an encouragement to saints, those of us who are a part of the wedding feast, the great feast of the Lord, that you continue to encourage us on as believers, as we are participants in your family, and we will be participants in that great banquet at the end where we will feast with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, forever. Lord, fill me with your spirit to preach this text well and illuminate this truth to all of us by your spirit. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Man, let's turn to Matthew, the 22nd chapter, verses 1 through 14. And this is the parable of the marriage feast or the wedding feast, as some translations say. Hope you had a chance to read this parable. It is the third one in this uh, trilogy of parables where Jesus judged the religious leaders for rejecting his mission as Messiah. And in this parable, he even, he's more specific as to who will be in the kingdom of God. So this is the word of the Lord. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, 
and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted calf are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, <coughs> invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw that a man there who had not had on, he saw a man rather there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how do you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. <coughs> then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but a few are chosen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. So, Jesus gives eight specifics of interpretation here. So we want to look at observations here. The king in this parable is God the Father. So the king is God the Father. The son in this parable is Jesus. The servants are John the Baptist, Jesus, and the disciples. The first guests are Israel at the time of Christ in verse 5 and the religious leaders in verse 6. The burning of the city refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which happened about 40 years after Christ's uh, death and ascension. The good and the bad are the Jews and the Gentiles. That's in verse 10. Gathered together all whom they found, both good and bad. And the wedding garments are the garments of righteousness. And the outer darkness that the man was cast into is the final judgment. Now I want to give a context of Jewish weddings in the first uh, century. First of all, it was an insult to turn down a wedding invitation in the first century. It was an insult to do that. Weddings were a really, really big deal 
uh, back during uh, this time. So to turn down a wedding invitation was big. It was huge. It was a problem. So it because it was a banquet, it was a it was a feast that was had. It was a lot of preparation that uh, went into it. So that's kind of how weddings were in the first century. They were very, very exceedingly important. They were social gatherings. They were time for people to get together. So it, was a, it wasn't just coming to see the couple get married. It was also a, a very social gathering. So it was very important to the people who were sent out the invitations that others come. Because if you look at this parable, the king sent the invitation out, and guess what? Nobody came. So that was highly insulting. And in fact, this was a king. You know, this wasn't just any ordinary person. This was a king. Now, the emphasis of this parable is on the guest who did not prepare himself for the wedding feast, which is uh, in verse, I think, 12, 11 and 12. That's who the emphasis of this parable is on. And the interpretation is found in verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. And we're going to see that as we go through this passage. That is the interpretation of it. Now, the big idea of this sermon is that the call to salvation in the gospel will be received by few, but it will be rejected by many. Amen. So, let's look at our principles here. We have... Uh, Four of them, I think, this morning. The first principle is that the salvation of the gospel is compared to a marriage feast. So Jesus says here, in this parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son, and he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. So the kingdom was like a, a king who arranged a marriage. Now, what is so important about marriage? First of all, I'll say what marriage is not, as our, our culture says. Marriage is not a piece of paper, as some people say. You know, I say, oh, is this marriage just a piece of paper? You know, people, especially people who are living in sin, cohabitating, you know, living in uh, fornication, they're living with each other but not married, that's that's a, that's a great sin. And they'll say, you talk to someone, they'll say, oh, marriage is just a, just a piece of paper. No, it's, it's, it's more than that. Marriage is more than just two people coming together. Marriage for the Christian, we should understand most of all that marriage is a picture of something. Marriage points to something more glorious than the two people who are getting married. Marriage is a picture of Christ and his bride. And who is the bride? The church. Paul says as much in Ephesians 5. At verse 22, Paul says this, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject to their own husbands. 
Then he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So we see in that scripture right there, the picture that marriage is a picture of Christ and his bride. In marriage, the husband and wife become one flesh. God uh, institutes this in Genesis 2 and 25, where he, he gave the first command of marriage to Adam and Eve. He says, a man shall leave his mother and his father and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's what marriage is. It's not just about two people coming together. It's not just a piece of paper that is notarized or signed by the county clerk after you pay your $25. No, marriage is a picture of something. It is a something glorious. Their husband and wife become one person. They become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one. They are united together under Christ as the head. And the bride is presented faultless before the groom. And this is where you get the traditional white wedding gown from because it is a, that their white wedding gown, the, some people who wear it may not even know why. They just know it was just a tradition, but it's a reason why that is traditionally. That white gown represents the wife, the bride, being presented faultless before the groom. It is a picture of Christ in the church. The church, which is Christ's body, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, is united with Christ, with him being the head. Christ is the head of the church. And at the end of the church age, Christ is going to present the church as glorious without spot or wrinkle. Paul says this further in Ephesians 5, 25-27. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her, her being the church, the bride, to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. That is what marriage looks like. It is a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. So we must understand that first, that the salvation of the gospel, the salvation that the gospel offers is compared to a marriage feast. Now with that being said, our salvation is a picture of oneness with Christ. Because when Christ saves us, we become one with him. Those of us who are saved in here, we are one with Christ. We are in union with Christ. 1 John 4 and 13 says that by this we know that we abide in him, him being Christ, and he in us. Because he has given us his spirit. Christ is in us, and guess what? We are in him. That's the oneness union that we as believers have with Christ. That he is in us and we are in him by means of his spirit. So as believers, we're one with Christ. We're in union with Christ. And no one can break that union up, not even the devil himself. 
Christ will clothe us with his righteousness. And he will present us faultless before God the Father on that last day. Jude 24 says this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you, believer, saint, faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Christ is going to present us faultless. We can't present ourselves faultless before God. We can't go to God and say, say, Lord, yeah, I've been a good person all my life. Receive me into your heaven. No, it is Christ who presents us faultless before God. We don't present ourselves. We're presented by Christ as faultless, without blame. Why? Because we have his righteousness. That is such a glorious truth that Christ presents us faultless. So because of this, the wedding feast is a picture of our salvation through the means of the gospel. That's what this wedding feast represents. Which leads to principle number two, which is the gospel invites all to participate in God's salvation. Look at verses 3 and 4 and then 9 and 10. So verse 3 Again, he sent out servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted calf are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. So he summoned them twice to go out. And then you see again in verse 9 and 10. When, that, when those servants had come, what did he say? The king didn't say, okay, we're going to cancel the wedding. He told them in verse 9 to go out. Verse 8 to go out. And verse 9 says, therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. Whoever you find, invite them. Both what? Good and bad. Gather all from whom they find. Don't discriminate. Just, bring, just invite people. And whoever shows up, shows up. Just invite them. Whomever. So let's look at this. Tell all those who invited, all things are ready. Come to the wedding. Now since the invitation was already set, the service were set twice, two times, to let the guests know that everything was ready. Just imagine... You're sending out an invitation for your wedding, and you don't get an RSVP the first time, so you send out more invitations. That's a big waste of money, right? Or you call those people that you say, hey, did you get my wedding invitation? Are you coming? <coughs> Everything's going to be laid out. It's kind of out of the picture you get there. The second time, they made light of it. They still didn't come. Nevertheless, the banquet was ready. It was still ready. The gospel message is always being sung. Always. By means of preaching, by the means of listening to it, or reading it. Anytime the gospel message goes out, guess what? 
Jesus is calling men to participate in his marriage feast of salvation. We always say that anytime people hear the gospel. John the Baptist, early on in his ministry in Matthew 3, Jesus in his early ministry in Matthew 4, and the disciples in Matthew 10, they invited their hearers to come into the kingdom of God. Matthew 3, when John the Baptist went out, he went out proclaiming the gospel. The Bible says in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was John the Baptist's message. Repent. He went out proclaiming the gospel as the forerunner of Christ. And then Christ himself in his ministry. John 4 and 17 when Christ began his public ministry. John, I mean Matthew 4 and 17 says from that time Jesus began to preach and to say. See if these words sound familiar. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus' first message wasn't about feeding the poor, taking care of the homeless or the marginalized, as these social justice uh, people say today. Jesus' first message was repent, turn to God, <coughs> be saved. They conveniently skip over that part of Jesus' ministry. Those were his first words. You know, they'll focus on, yes, he ministered to the Samaritan woman. He caught the woman in adultery and let her go, although he told her, go and sin no more. You know, he fed the 5,000. They, they focus on all those works and make Jesus out to be some type of a social justice hippie. But no, Jesus was the God-man who called men to their most important endeavor, and that is to repent to turn away from your sin and turn to God and live. Turn to God and be saved. Turn to God and escape his wrath. So John the Baptist's first words were repent. Jesus' first words were repent. That is the gospel call. It is always to repent. And Jesus, when he instructed his apostles in Matthew 10, he told them, he gave them great instructions. He told them to go into the cities. He says, and when you go to a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let that peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. He was telling them when they were going out and preaching and declaring the gospel. Some people are going to receive it, and some people are going to reject it. Those who don't reject it, he told them, shake the dust off your feet. And he says it's going to be more terrible for them in the day of judgment than it was in, uh, for Sodom and Gomorrah. The message is always repent. Anytime the gospel is going out, that's why I always say, hey, share these sermons with your unsaved loved ones. Look, we can't comfort people with lies. It is the truth. 
that softens hearts. I was reading this in John MacArthur's uh, book uh, about people who want their ears tickled. His book called Ashamed of the Gospel. He talked about preachers. People want their ears to be tickled. So they seek out teachers. They heap upon themselves teachers, but not sound ones. They choose the teachers who tell them what they want to hear. They want what tickles their ears and feeds their lusts. They want what makes them feel good about themselves. Preachers who offend them, they reject. They accumulate a mass of teachers who feed their insatiable, selfish appetites. And the preacher who brings the message they most need to hear is the one they least like to hear. Guess what? It's going to be that way when you share this sermon with your unsaved loved ones. But do it anyway. Because they need to hear the truth. That they need the gospel. That they need Christ. This man, this king sent out this invitation to all these people. Just as the gospel goes out. Every time it goes out, Jesus is calling men to participate in his wedding feast by being saved. But just as much as the invitation goes out, it is rejected by many. It was rejected by many in the days of the disciples in Christ. And it is rejected by many now. But just because it's rejected doesn't mean that we shouldn't share it still. Now we have to understand this, that God lacks nothing in saving the sinner's soul. It is not as if God is, is powerless and he's impotent and he has his hands tied and he can't do anything. That's not the problem. In this parable, he prepared his oxen and fatted calf. He prepared the best of animals for his wedding. He brought out all the stops. God does the same thing with the gospel. And this is what J.C. Ryle, the, the great 19th century preacher, said. Listen to this. He says, no one would ever be able to say at last that it was God's fault if he is not saved. The Father is ready to love and receive. The son is ready to pardon and cleanse guilt away. The spirit is ready to sanctify and renew. Angels are ready to rejoice over the returning sinner. Grace is ready to assist him. The Bible is ready to instruct him. Heaven is ready to be his everlasting home. Everything is ready for the unbeliever. Everything is ready for them. But as J.C. Ryle said, no one will be able to say that it is God's fault because everything is ready for them. The sinner will be without excuse. The door is open. The way has been made. It is straight for all who are invited to come in. All are invited to come in. Man will be without excuse because the gospel invitation is to all. Just as this king sent the invitation, he told his servants to go everywhere. Go to the highways. I know the King James says the highways and the byways. Go 
everywhere. The highways and the edges just compel whoever to come. That is the call of the gospel. Whosoever will, that will come. That is the gospel call. The gospel invitation is to all, regardless of nationality or ethnicity, regardless of economic standing, regardless of ability, he invites all. This reminds me of what Peter uh, observed in uh, Acts 10, 34 and 35, when salvation went to Cornelius' household. It says here in Acts 10 and 34, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. Because Cornelius was a Gentile and Peter was a Jew, and, and, and Peter had that vision, and God told him, Don't call anything uh, unclean that I call clean. He was talking about Gentiles. So Cornelius was a Gentile. God, rather through the Spirit, sent Peter to Cornelius' house. And so Peter, in front of Cornelius' family, Say, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, that you may know, which was proclaimed through all Judea and began in Galilee after the baptism of John is preached. The gospel is for all. The message is for all. Man will be without excuse because God invites all. So now the customary second invitation went out as we saw. If people didn't come to the first one, as I said earlier about those weddings, I mean, you pretty much had to come. But if people didn't come to the first invitation, they extended a second one. So again, that second one came, and the scripture says that they would not come. The Greek for would not come means their wills were set against coming. That's way back in, I think, verse 3. And they were not willing to come at the end of verse 3. That means that they their wills were set against coming. That was something completely unnatural. Because in real life, a royal invitation is not refused. I mean, you have a king that sends you a wedding invitation, and you're going to skip by that? And people are very glad to be present at a royal banquet, especially in these times. You know you have the best of food. You have the best of service. If somebody invites me to a fine dining restaurant, I'm going. If somebody invites me to Classical Nova and say they'll pay, I'm there. What time? 12.30, 1 o'clock. I'm there. Especially for this Sunday brunch. Costs $32 now. Yeah, somebody invites me. That's some fine dining right there. Got the white tablecloths and everything. You know what? I'm not going to turn that invitation down. But these people turn down this king's invitation, a royal invitation. Now, we should not miss the point that Jesus regards the actions of the high priestly party. We don't want to miss the, the greater point of this. Their outward profession 
Well, first of all, when they were summoned by the king of heaven, they should surely have complied with his gracious invitation. That was the greater point of this parable. Their outward profession was a long way from the glad acceptance of the ways of God. Because this is who this parable was going to. It was going to the, the, the priests and the Pharisees. They, they should have known that invitation. But they didn't know it. They, they of all people should have known this invitation. That you don't reject. And that's what Leon Moore said. They, they should surely have complied with such a gracious invitation. Excuse me, but they did not. So they were te terribly grieved, agreed for that. Now, what does this mean? The gospel invitation is one that should never be refused. It is insulting to turn down such a royal invitation of the gospel to be saved. It's, it, is an, it is an insult to God. Why? Because the food, Proverbs, four, I mean, not Proverbs, Psalm 14 1 says this The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. The fool has said that. Let me tell you something. When a person rejects the gospel, they're rejecting God. Because, it's, oh, it's, oh, no, I, I, I believe in God. No, you don't. You don't believe in God. If you believe in God, you will receive his gospel message of salvation. The fact that you reject it means that you don't believe. You can't say, I don't believe God's gospel on one hand, but yet I believe in God in the other hand. Those two things are diametrically opposed to each other. Those two things can't be true at the same time. Because if you're rejecting the gospel, you're rejecting the God of the gospel, the God who delivered the gospel. So you're rejecting God altogether. You're saying there is no God. You're like the fool. Again, the scripture says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That's Hebrews 2 and 3. How shall we escape judgment? How shall we escape hell and eternal damnation if we neglect so great a salvation? We won't. We won't. God invites another point to make out of this, uh, verses 9 and 10, especially verse 10, is that God invites all the morally good and bad to participate in his wedding feast. Regardless of a person's sinful condition, the need to respond to the gospel is always paramount. Whether they're good, morally, you know, we know some people who are just, they're just nice people, they're just great, just moral people, just good people. Good in the sense of man's measure. We all know people like that. They're nice people, they're wonderful people. Man, you know, you count some of them as friends, you'll go out to eat with them, stuff like that. Some people that are family like that, they're just good people. But guess what? They still need the gospel. They need to know that your good works is not going to save you. That your being good is not your ticket to heaven. 
Some of the best people that we may know are going to see the worst judgment in hell because they thought in their hearts that I'm a good person. God's going to wink at me and say, yeah, you're a good guy. You're a good lady. You're a good child. You're most voted most likely to succeed. You're ahead of your company. You made six figures. You made it to the big house on the lake or up in the mountain. You made it to take that trip around the world. You made it to go on that two-week cruise. You made it to be able to travel all 50 states and, and visit 38 countries. Yes, you made it to do all those things. You, you gave to the poor, you gave to the United Way and the, and the YMCA and all these charitable organizations. You did all those good things. You, 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 you helped open the doors for little old ladies at the hospital. You participated in Operation Christmas Child and, and, and you, you brought gifts for people at Christmas time. People love being around you, talk about you because you're such a great guy, you're such a great lady to be around. You you walk into a room and the room just lights up because of your personality. You know, we know people like that. They, they Their personality, they just light up a room like they have an aura about them or something. We can say all those flowery things about people that are, quote, good. But this invitation went out to the good and the bad, which means that even the good need to be invited to the wedding feast, as well as the bad, as well as the one who always gave his parents trouble and who couldn't keep friends or who couldn't be in a good relationship or who worked 30 jobs in 10 years or, you know, who had all these different baby bombers out there and who they're not in trailer park or the project somewhere or, you know, they, they got a lot of money and they wasted it all on drugs or, or you know, always speeding up the highway, getting speeding tickets. Got, got a long criminal rap sheet. And you see that mugshot on, on TV on time on, on Calhoun County busted on Facebook and, you know, they on Calhoun County's most wanted or, you know, you see all this. They got tattoos all the way up to the neck and behind the neck and got the head full of tattoos and, you know, man, like, that person is invited to the banquet too. Yeah. That person is invited to receive Christ. Mm -hmm. The invitation went out to who? The good and the bad. The salvation of the gospel is for those who think they're good and those who think they're bad. Principle three. Now, the salvation of the gospel is rejected by many to whom it is offered. Verses five through eight. But they made light of it and went their ways. So this one the invitation went out. You know, the, the service went out to hey, tell these people that were invited to come on. It says in verse five, but they made light of it and went their ways. One to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. And of course, when the king heard it, he was furious, and he told his uh, servants in verse 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Now, those who made light of it 
they went their own ways. This is what can happen. It is the preoccupation with worldly affairs and duties that keep people from attending the great wedding feast. And I'll say this, while there's nothing wrong with pursuits in this life, there's nothing wrong with worldly pursuits. Nothing wrong with it. The problem comes when those pursuits take precedence over the saving of one's soul. It's like the parable of the souls, Matthew 13. The uh, thorny soul. The, the seed was planted, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choked the word. Unsaved people, they only care about the affairs of this world. They only care about doing things to entertain themselves and their flesh. They are not concerned about their souls. And so they'll be sitting right here in church, right now, today if they cared about their souls. You know, we always talk about priorities, right? People don't prioritize their soul. They don't prioritize their need to be saved. They're living on borrowed time. They don't realize it. Instead of accepting the invitation to come to church and hear the gospel, and then hear the gospel proclaimed, and the call to repent and believe in Christ, instead of doing all that, they'd rather go and tend to worldly affairs. We're not talking about if a person has to work on Sunday because that does happen. They have that kind of job. These uh, companies are sinful. Some of those who don't. You see people are cutting their grass. You go to church sometimes, you see folks cutting their grass, just taking care of stuff that they couldn't take care of during the Monday through Friday week because uh, Saturday they watch college football all day. This time of year especially. If Sunday comes around, we don't live in a uh, NFL area where people watch a lot of NFL. So Sunday's okay. Saturday's college football. You know, all we got the brakes beat off of them. Alabama beat the brakes off of University of Louisiana Monroe. That's over. Go out, go out to eat, have some drinks. Wake up Sunday, cut the grass, do some yard work, catch up on sleep. Worldly affairs. Go on the river. Go get on your boat. Get your jet skis. Go hiking up in the mountain. Thing is, there's nothing wrong with those things. Those are good things. But one day, those people are going to have to give an account for their soul. They have to give an account. They have to stand before God one day. And we see this in this parable. These people made light of it and went their ways. This group of people in this parable were too concerned with their own affairs to respond to the king's invitation. And Jesus illustrates this. Uh, Leon Morris said this. Jesus illustrates this with two concerns which we are expected to regard as typical. Now, in this same parable in Luke the invitees all made excuses in Luke 14 and 18. This is what they said. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. 
This is the same parable as, is, as it is in, in Luke. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and seek it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and now I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. They all had excuses. But those, these do not bother. They just go off to pursue their own concerns in Matthew's gospel. One guest went off to his farm. It was it had to be something that could have easily held over. Perhaps. It could have waited. You know, we're only in church for about two hours on a Sunday. Get that long, hour, 45 minutes. Priorities, right? Just something to think about. Now the second guy in this parable in his business Another to his business. There was no urgency. It's an excuse. And what Jesus is doing here is he's showing typical shallow excuses to bring the point that these impolite guests had no reason to stay away from the banquet. They simply just didn't care. Do you know that one of the greatest sins is the sin of indifference? Where you just don't care. Apathy. It means you can care less. That's what it means to be indifferent. Like, I don't care. Don't bother me. That kind of attitude, that's, that's indifference. And that is a very great sin. And that's uh, the sin of these two men. They simply did not care. And that's what uh, Leon Morris said, and I added to that. Some people just don't care to respond to the gospel invitation. They don't care to participate in God's banquet. They don't even make excuses. They just don't come. You know, it's like <laughs> some people don't, you, you invite them to church, they don't have, they're not doing anything. They don't, they don't even make excuses. They won't say, yeah, I'll be there, and then I'll show up. They just won't say anything. They just won't come. You know they're not doing anything. You invite them, hey, come to church, you know, fellowship, hear the gospel. They only say no, they just don't show up. This is indifference, again. It is a greater sin than making excuses. J.C. Ryle said this. He says, oh, this is, this is good. He says, there are thousands of hearers of the gospel who derive from it no benefit whatsoever. They listen to it Sunday after Sunday and year after year and do not believe to the saving of the soul. They feel no special need of the gospel. They see no special beauty in it. They do not perhaps hate it or oppose it or scoff at it, but they do not receive it into their hearts. They like other things far better. 
their money, their lands, their business, or their pleasures are all far more interesting subjects to them than their souls. He continues, it is a dreadful state of mind to be in, but awfully common. And J.C. Rowe uh, lived in the 1800s. He was saying this in the 19th century. This, this could be said today. He continues, let us search our own hearts and take heed that it is not our own. Open sin may kill its thousands, but indifference and neglect of the gospel kills their tens of thousands. Multitudes will find themselves in hell, not so much because they openly broke the Ten Commandments as because they made light of the gospel. Christ died for them on the cross, but they neglected him because they didn't care. Think about that rejection. Christ died on the cross for them, but they don't care. They don't. They can come to Easter Sunday and say all this stuff. They can come and always say, look, communion is not open communion. You examine yourself. You know you're not worthy. Don't take it. Because you're taking it to your damnation. But people will come Easter Sunday, all this stuff, uh, Christmas, sing all these songs about the birth of Christ. But they still neglect them. That's terrible. Christ died for their sins, but they still neglect them. Moving on, principle four. Those who refuse Christ's righteousness refuse Christ altogether. We see this in the last four verses. When the king came, he saw a man there who did not have on his wedding garments. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? Because at these weddings, everybody wore something to the wedding. They wore certain garments. To a wedding. They didn't just show up in street clothes with a bonnet on their head. <laughs> they got dressed up for the women. It, it was a social function. It was, everybody knows, it was a social event. Anyway, and he was speechless. The man couldn't say anything. And the king said that the servants bind him up. Take them away and cast them into the outer darkness. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this man did not have on a wedding garment. Again, as I just said, it was customary for those who were invited to the wedding to wear garments given to them for the occasion. So, you know, they sent, okay, it's like we invite people to a wedding and we send them the clothes to wear. We wouldn't do that, would we? But that's where it was during this time. Now, these garments mean something. But the man didn't have on wedding garments, which was a further insult to the king and his son. If you come to these weddings, you're supposed to have on the wedding garments. That's how serious it was. This demonstrated an arrogant attitude and the thought that he didn't need the garments. I mean, he was somebody special. He didn't, he didn't need the garments. He was in great violation 
of, 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 uh, of this king. So what about these wedding garments? These wedding garments represent the garments of righteousness that every believer receives upon salvation. They represent our being cleansed from the dirt and filth of our sins. That's what they represent. You find this in Psalm 132 and, and 16, uh, one of the scriptures that talks about this. I will also clothe her priest with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. Isaiah 61 and 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So, so Christ covers us with his robes of righteousness. Only by the righteousness of Christ can we participate in the great wedding feast. This man had on what didn't represent those garments, so guess what? He wasn't invited. He wasn't supposed to be there. And why is this important for us to remember as believers about having the righteousness of Christ imputed or credited to our account? Because Christ's garments make us totally acceptable before God. It is the righteousness of Christ that makes us acceptable for God. It is not our own righteousness, which is sinful because the Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags. We're not acceptable by God because of our good moral behavior. Just like a, a, a person who's morally good, they're not accepted by God just because they're a good person, just because they do great things. Only by having the righteousness of Christ can we even stand before God as believers. We can't even approach God in prayer without the righteousness of Christ being on us. It is because of Christ's righteousness that God hears our prayers, that God receives us as his sons. These garments represent our union with Christ and our oneness with him. But the garments are available for everyone. But they must put them on. And how do they put them on? By accepting the call of salvation. Paul tells the Romans in Romans 13 and 14 to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its desires. We have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us as believers. Now, if you note, the king addresses this man who offends him as friend. You notice that in verse 12, friend. There was no hostility toward this man's indifference. God does not regard our hostility toward his son with hostility, but with a loving rebuke friend. Even in his wrath, God still showed mercy to this man. This, this king, rather, showed mercy to this man, which is a, a, a picture of God to us. Even in God's wrath, he still shows mercy to us. 
in saving us. Even in his just wrath, God still shows mercy to sinners. Matthew Poole said that this man's finding one without his wedding garment signifies his finding many hypocrites in the day of judgment. So this man represents a hypocrite. He represents a false convert in this parable. On that day, on that great day of judgment, all of the false converts and false professors of faith will be exposed. All of them will be. Those who refuse Christ's righteousness through salvation will be judged. And how will they be judged? Look at the passage here. He says here in verse 13, bind him hand and foot. This signifies that all such persons that live within the church under the means of grace yet die as unbelievers and unremorseful. They don't have a true faith and they haven't received Christ as Savior. They haven't brought forth the fruits of true repentance and holiness. They shall get nothing by their being within the church and externally called, but they shall rather be thrown into hell as with others. The pains of which are hereby expressed by binding hand and foot, lying in outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what Matthew Poole says. So I'll, I'll read some of that again because I want to focus on something right quick. Those people shall get nothing by their being within the church. Many people think because they go to church, they got cover. Going to church doesn't save you. Some of those who are going to be thrown into the outer darkness are those who go to church every Sunday and hear the gospel. But they never put their trust and faith in God. They never repent and turn to God. But they come every Sunday. Outwardly, they, they sing the songs, they pray the prayer, they say amen to the sermon, they fellowship, they do things for the saints. But their souls have not been converted. Guess what? They're going to be bound hand and foot and thrown into the outer darkness where there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's who this man represents in this parable. Those false converts. Those false professors of faith. They will get nothing, as Matthew Poole said, they will get nothing by their being within the church. Because they didn't repent. They didn't show the fruits of repentance. They didn't show a true faith in Christ. So that's what's going to happen to them. And then he ends this parable by saying, many are called, but few are chosen. This is the overriding theme of this parable. This is the doctrine of election. Many are in the church, 
but not of the church. Not all of Israel are of Israel, as Paul said in Romans 10. Many people are in the church, but they are not of the church. They don't belong to the church. Many claim Christ, but are not in Christ. Many hear the gospel, but few believe on the gospel message. Many seeds are scattered, like the parable of the seeds of the soils in Matthew 13, but few fall on good ground. Many go through the wide gate, but few go through the straight gate. Lord, may we be among the chosen. May we be among, among the elect. If you are the elect, you are already elect. If you're saved, you're saved. But there are many who think that they are, but they aren't. They claim Christ, but they're not in Christ. They hear the gospel, but they don't believe the gospel. That's why I, I pray every week for the unsaved. I pray for the unsaved. I pray for our children. I pray for adults. I pray for our visitors. Look, we love you. Be saved. Believe in Jesus. You're going to have to give an account one day. That matters. And they need to know that, and they need to hear that. It matters. You're going to have to stand before God one day. And you can't ride on the faith of your grandparents. You can't ride on the faith of your parents. You can't ride on the faith of your uncles or aunts or your, or your best friends. You have to stand before God for yourself. You can't ride on the coattails of the faith of anybody else. Nobody else is going to be able to cover for you and vouch for you. That is the hard message. Amen? Implications as we close. The invitation of the gospel reaches far and wide. Accept it and proclaim it. When you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts. Repent, turn to Christ, and be saved. For the believers, prepare yourself for the great way to peace. Put on Christ. Walk in Christ. Walk as children of the day, not children of the night. Walk as those who are of light and not darkness. Third, God called us that we may share in the glory of Jesus Christ. That is why he called us. God chose us for salvation. We were called by the gospel to stand fast and hold forth the traditions which we were taught. And we are to make our calling and election sure examine ourselves whether we're in the faith. The worst kind of convert is a false convert. And we don't want to be named among them. Amen. Amen. That's a place, a great place to land that. Let us pray. Father, thank you for hard words. Hard words soften hearts. Thank you, Lord, that the gospel does go out. That you're constantly preaching the gospel, either through natural revelation or through the preaching of it, through evangelizing, 
Lord, you're constantly calling me into repent. And Lord, my prayer today is that those who hear this message that are not saved, that know that they're not, that Lord, you convince them of their need to be saved, convince them of their of need for a savior. Lord, you're so gracious and loving, you're mighty to save. You don't discriminate, you don't show partiality. Scripture testifies to that as we read it today. You don't show favorites. Lord, you say it to the utmost. And Lord, I'm praying that you bring salvation to those within the sound of my voice who need it. From our children all the way up to adults, to our visitors that come. Lord, that you may shine the light of the gospel on them and that they may hear it and be saved. And have their lives turned upside down for your sake. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.